Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 will begin in verse 8 tonight. And let me remind you as we continue on our journey through the letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches, that these letters apply in four different ways. You may recall this. They apply historically. Seven actual letters to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, Minor in John's day. Asia Minor, of course, is today Turkey. And these seven churches were located right there historically. Corporately, these letters have application to any church of any time. We can read these letters, as we'll do tonight, and apply them to our own situation. And understand and see and learn and know a little more of what God would expect of us or have for us as a church body. So they apply historically, corporately, they apply personally. Which again, I encourage you, take the things in this book and apply it to you. Look at your own life. As we read through this, think about what is the Lord saying to me? Lord, give me ears that I might hear what you're saying to me personally. So historically, corporately, personally, and finally, and I think the most exciting of the four is prophetically, for these seven churches, again, speak to the church age over the last 2,000 years. And we see with each one of these seven churches, an epoch, in church history, as you will see again tonight. Now last week we began with our, our journey into the church age with that first epoch, that first section or portion, if you will, of the church age. Ephesus. Ephesus, the darling church. Ephesus, those first 60 or 70 years of the church's existence. And the letter written to the church in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, was also a letter written to the early church. To the church in John's day. In fact, if you recall, John was the one who said over and over in the waning years of his life, he said, little children love each other. Little children love each other. John was impacted by this. He came off of Patmos, finally finding his release, was sent back to Ephesus, where he spent most of the rest of his days, staying in Ephesus and sometimes journeying to each of these seven churches. And church history, tradition tells us that John went to these churches and his message was the same. Little children love each other. And it's no surprise when the message to the church at Ephesus was, remember your first love. You have left your first love. And so John's final message for the last years of his life was love each other, love each other, love each other. He was speaking to that first church in the church age. That church represented by Ephesus. Now it didn't take long for the church to come under serious attack. First from Jews who saw it as a threat. We read that in the early pages of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4. Jews in the synagogue trying to, to uh, imprison Peter and John. They didn't do a real good job of it. Actually, it emboldened the church even more. We read in Acts chapter 4 this amazing prayer that the disciples prayed together. And they prayed for boldness and the room was shaken. But then some time passed, not much, and we have the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, that disciple, wasn't one of the apostles. He was actually more or less a deacon in the first century church. One of seven men that was chosen, called out for a task. And Stephen was taken up before the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish ruling council. And in front of this group, he proclaimed the whole message of Christ going all the way back to Moses. You can read it. It's powerful. It's in Acts chapter 7. But Acts chapter 8 begins with this verse. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. On that day, that is the day of Stephen's martyrdom, on that day great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. But the heat of persecution didn't cool off. 
The pressure didn't ease. The intensity didn't calm down. As a matter of fact, very soon Rome would enter the fray. And when Rome entered the fray, for almost 300 years, the first century church, the early church, would be under intense persecution. Unlike any that we in America have ever experienced. Oh, we have the battles going on in the Supreme Court. We know of the battles going on for whether or not a monument can be on a court, uh, courtyard or on a lawn stating the Ten Commandments and that God is the only God. And we get all up in arms about that. And well, we should. We should be concerned with these things. But it was nothing. It is nothing like what they were facing. They weren't battling to have the Ten Commandments up on a lawn. They were battling for their lives. And the persecution was intense. Now, when we think about this, and you consider it, for a moment, if I were God, and we've all agreed that that's not a good idea, but if that was the case, and I was going to birth my church into the world, I would find the safest time in history where I had, I knew, a lot of time, many, many years, for the church to grow, to be nurtured, to be safe, to be warm and coddled and cared for, and I would plant the church then, in that period of time. That's not what God did. He chose possibly the worst period of time in which to birth his new church. I think about it in terms of my own kids. The birth of my own children. And I might have brought them into very different places if I had thought about it ahead of time. If I had been able to prepare. Corey was born in Tacoma, Washington. Tacoma General Hospital. I remember at the time, Cheryl was in and out of the hospital with preterm labor for the last three months of her pregnancy. And we lived up above the Tide Flats down there in Tacoma where I was serving my first youth ministry. And I would drive back and forth from our house down through the Tide Flats into Tacoma where the hospital was, Gang Central, for the worst places in Washington to have a child. And that's where Corey was born. Now, I might not have planned that had I been thinking ahead about where to raise a child. Well, then we moved to Fairfax, Virginia where Hannah was born. Fair Oaks Hospital, beautiful hospital, very rich, wealthy area, fantastic schools. But I'll tell you, after living there and doing youth ministry for a while there, that place is driven. We were 20 minutes outside the Washington, D.C. Beltway, and it is driven. And I'm not sure that that's the best place to raise a child because they are so intense. It's amazing. The kids I worked with in youth ministry are different than any kids I ever dealt with before because there was such drivenness. Well, then we moved back to Anaheim, California. It's a nice place to raise kids. And our son Hayden was born, and he was brought home to a home that was located across the street from one of the worst crime areas in all of North Orange County. As a matter of fact, two weeks after we moved to Anaheim, Cheryl's mom was, was joined, joined us. She was spending the night at our home, and, and about 1 o'clock in the morning, we're in the house there, and, and everybody's kind of settling down and sleeping. We'd watched the movie, so we had been up late. Suddenly, we hear gunshots outside of our window. And then we hear an alarm going off in the strip mall right over the wall from our backyard. And within about five minutes, we hear police helicopters and a light shining in our back, backyard and a voice saying, stay where you are. And I'm like, no, go, run, don't stay where you are. And this is where Hayden was born. Not a safe place. I remember the first year or so that we were at that church in the middle of downtown Anaheim. And on Sundays, where here our kids just kind of run free and we send them out and yeah, go play with the bull, whatever you want to do, have a good time. But in Anaheim, I was always a bit nervous. Cheryl and I always knew between us we had to have our eyes on our kids. Because you never knew. It was a, it was a big church campus and it was right there on, on Knott Avenue in Lincoln. Not a safe place to be. 
But I didn't have time to think about it or, or plan ahead or prepare, especially for Hayden. He was God's little gift to us. We had no idea he was even going to show up. If I had time to prepare ahead of time, I might not have had my kids born where they were born. God had all of eternity. And yet he chose this particular time in history to birth his church. Why? Why, Lord? Why did you do it? Listen, during the first 282 years of the church's existence, Rome saw to the martyrdom of upwards of 7 million Christians in the first 300 years. Some scholars have even said it was as many as 10 million. But we know at least 7 million. Possibly as many as 3 million were martyred in the first 60 to 70 years alone. That's a lot of Christian death. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, we understand Paul's words when he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we understand maybe a little better Jesus' words in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And Jesus' words then in John 16.33. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And so we come to the second church in Asia. And the second epoch in the church age, we come to suffering Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Suffering Smyrna. We travel north from Ephesus. Ephesus was, a, was a, on the sea coast, the Aegean Sea. We travel north, about 70 miles or so, to a church that had fallen on hard times. Literally, it's a church that is in tribulation. Historically, Smyrna, the church there, was under intense persecution. They were having serious problems. Now, I want you to note the word for tribulation here, in the Greek, it's not easy to say, it's phlipsis. Philipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. You really got to be Greek to say it correctly. Philipsis. What Philipsis means, the word for tribulation is literally to be crushed. To be crushed. This is a church that was experiencing a crushing. Crushing blows, crushing persecution, crushing, crushing tribulation. But suffering Smyrna, again, while historic, was also prophetic. A stunning picture of the church age between A.D. 100 and 312. You might want to jot those dates down. A.D. 100 to 312. Ephesus would be from when Jesus ascended, 33 to 35, somewhere around there, from the beginnings of the church all the way up to about A.D. 100. Now we get into the second church, A.D. 100 to 312, and it was a time of the suffering or the persecuted church. And church history is clear on this. And so we begin again with Jesus' partial revelation. Remember there are five sections pretty much that Jesus takes each one of these churches through. And the first in this one tonight is the partial revelation. He begins to give a partial picture of himself. Verse 8, going back and looking at it. 
to Smyrna, right, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. What's significant about these partial revelations is, again, each one of them apply to each particular church. So as you're reading about the church, think about what Jesus is saying about himself and how he relates to that church. How he is connected to that church. This is one of the many times where the Bible departs radically from common human literature. Its author claiming an identity that we talked about last week. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. And Jesus Christ claims I am the first and I am the last who was dead and has come to life. And the same Jesus reminds Smyrna, tells Smyrna, that if anyone understands suffering, he does. If anyone gets pain, he does. If anyone has suffered abuse, he has. If anyone knows what it's like to be betrayed, Jesus was. That's incredibly comforting to me. Because at times in my life where I feel let down or, or hurt, or as we talked briefly about this morning, caught up in times where I don't even understand what's going on, remember, Jesus does understand. If anyone knows suffering, the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, knows suffering. Now Smyrna's name, as with every name of every church, carries a great weight of significance. Smyrna, the name, means myrrh. Myrrh. You recall the word myrrh. If you've sung any Christmas carols, you are familiar with myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There are four times myrrh is mentioned in the Bible, specifically with Jesus in his stay on earth. First time is at his birth. Where Jesus is given myrrh along with the gold and the frankincense. Matthew chapter 2 verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in our crushes and in our little nativity scenes, we've made these three gifts look very precious, although you need to understand, and they are significant, the gold, that would be obviously a gift for a king. The frankincense would be a gift for a priest, but myrrh? Myrrh is a gift for a dead man, because myrrh is a burial spice. And I want to encourage you, if you're ever invited to or if you're going to a baby shower, don't bring burial spices. It's not a way to liven up the party. And yet this is what the three kings, not three kings, we know wise men, we don't know how many, but this is what the wise men brought to Jesus, the baby at his birth. Gold, alright, gold, this will help pay some of the bills. And frankincense, well it will make the house smell nice. And myrrh, huh? A burial spice, myrrh. It was given to Jesus on the cross. The dying Savior was offered an interesting painkiller. Mark chapter 15, verse 23. 22 and 23 tells us they brought him to the place Golgotha which is translated place of a skull and they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it why did they mix myrrh with wine because myrrh also functioned as a numbing device it was an antiseptic it was a numbing drug if you would take myrrh it would dull the senses along with the mind and Jesus said no he refused to take it why Lord? You deserve a little painkiller on the cross, but Jesus would take the full weight of God's, of God's wrath. He took the full pressure, the full persecution. He felt every ounce of being on the cross, rejecting even the myrrh that could have numbed the pain just a little bit. He took the full weight of God's wrath. So we see the myrrh at his birth, we see it on the cross, we see it also again at his burial. 
Myrrh was brought to embalm the body. This was Jewish custom for Jewish embalming. John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had come first to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. Now, there's a possible fourth time that myrrh was offered to Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, but he would never get it. He'd never receive it. Mark chapter 16 verse 1 tells us when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices, likely one of those spices was again myrrh, so that they might come and anoint him. But again, this myrrh was completely unnecessary because by the time they got him, got to him, there was no need for burial spices at all. He had risen. He was alive. And the myrrh would become obsolete. But not just obsolete for that day. Isaiah chapter 60. Flip in your Bibles over there quickly. Isaiah chapter 60. Again, Isaiah is easy to find. It's right in the middle. Just kind of let the Bible fall to the middle and you should be somewhere near Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60. I'll begin in verse 1. Isaiah 60 verse 1. Speaking of Zion, speaking of that day when Jerusalem will be glorified, when it will be the new, the, the new and glorified Jerusalem, listen to this, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That's significant because the glory of the Lord hasn't been in Jerusalem for a long time. But Ezekiel prophesied the glory will return. And here we have Isaiah telling us the same thing, verse 2, For behold, darkness will cover the earth. And deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your life and kings to the brightness of your rising. Which is far from what's going on right now. I, by the way, um, the Prime Minister Abbas of the Palestinians right now is, is, is somewhat excited. He's come up with a list of his demands for what Israel needs to do. They need to meet that list of demands before there can be peace. And he's excited because there's going to be a meeting between uh, Prime Minister Abbas and President Bush, I believe, this next week. And he's looking forward to more pressure from the U.S. against Israel to give up more land. So that's what's going right on right now. Nations are not coming to the light in Israel. Nations are trying to douse the light of Israel. But the Bible promises there will come a day when that does not happen. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 4, lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Ladies, doesn't that sound good to you? To be carried. Hannah still loves to be carried. I know this is embarrassing for you and I'll, I'll have to pay you something when we get home. But she still, she still loves to be carried. Any daughter would. The thought of being scooped up in the arms of your father... And this is what, ladies, God is saying to you, your daughters, oh, you'll be carried in the arms. And then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Now, understand the prophecy of this. The wealth of the nations had been there under Solomon. Possibly the richest kingdom in the history of the world was under the reign of Solomon. But by the time Isaiah was writing, that was past tense. The Jewish people were wondering, would that kingdom ever come again? And the prophet Isaiah said, oh yes, yes it will. The day will come. 
Verse 6, a multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. And listen, all those from Sheba will come. They'll bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. But guess what they don't bring? There's no myrrh. They're bringing the gold. They're bringing the frankincense. Gifts for a king. Gifts for a priest. But not the gift of a dead man because Jesus no longer is dead but is eternally alive as we will be as well. There's no need for the myrrh. Now back to suffering Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2. Why again? Why? Why, Lord, did you birth? Why did you birth your church in this time? Knowing that the church would almost instantaneously be facing incredible persecution and tribulation. Why did you do it? Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Just listen to the way Paul phrases this. For to you it has been granted... To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Paul speaks as if it's a great gift. Hey, it's been given to you to suffer. It's been granted to you to be persecuted. You're being given a wonderful blessing. The blessing of tribulation. And it reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life. My favorite movies of all time. Clarence the angel says to George Bailey, he says, You've been given a great gift, George, a chance to see what the world would be like without you. And Paul is saying here, you've been given a great gift, a chance to see what the world is like through the eyes of Jesus. And understand, when you experience pain, when you experience persecution for the sake of your Lord Jesus, you are seeing the world through His eyes. You are walking in His footsteps. Paul would say in another place, I want to know the, the, the power of your rising and I want to share in your sufferings. I want to experience this with you because it makes me more like you. In fact, it's Philippians 3, 7 and 10. Paul said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Why, Paul? That I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship, the fellowship, the commonality, he's saying, of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Life, Jesus would say, life, Paul says, life, Jesus tells Smyrna, is not about success. It is not about pleasure. It's not about ease or creature comforts. Jesus' determination to save you and to save me cost Him His very life in a brutal and bloody way. And the person who determines to bow the knee to Jesus is granted, Paul says, afforded the opportunity to do the same. To go through persecution. And this is the position, again, that we find this church in Smyrna, the city of Myrrh. So Jesus gives his... Uh, Again, he gives his partial revelation. Then he moves on, second thing, to his, to his positive affirmation. Verse 9. Positive affirmation. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know your tribulation. I know, Smyrna, that you have been experiencing crushing. Philipsis in the Greek. <coughs> and we wonder, how can Jesus say they're rich if they're being persecuted? How can he say that crushing is a good thing? And how can Paul say that crushing has been granted to believers as if it's some kind of special gift? Listen, it's interesting how myrrh works. Myrrh, the, the spice. 
Myrrh, the, the burial spice that we were discussing, it's a bitter-tasting resinous oil, myrrhs. And when it dries, it hardens into little teardrop-shaped chunks. Then, to create the sweet perfumes and fragrant spices of myrrh, myrrh has to be ground up. It has to be crushed. And as myrrh is crushed, it releases its fragrance. It releases the sweetness. Smyrna, you're crushed right now. But your fragrance is eternally rich. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Always carrying around the body of death. Remember that, that phrase, that saying we just picked up last week. We are living in the land of the dying en route to the land of the living. I saw an interesting movie yesterday with the kids. We went and saw The Corpse Bride. Tim Burton's new movie. <laughs> and it, you know, it's very interesting. And I actually could encourage you to go see it. There's something that happens, and I don't, you know, Tim Burton has a very twisted mind as a director if you've seen anything that he's, he's done on the screen. But in this particular stop action animation film, when you're in the world of the so called living, it's gray and murky and dark blues and shabby and it's real depressing. The moment you get into the world of the so called dying, with the corpses and the skeletons and all the creatures down there. It's bright and happy and cheery and wonderful. And I thought, you know, that's not too far from the truth. Not that we're going to look, you know, like we look when we die. Not that we're going to be all gross, sicko corpses and skeletons and stuff. But the colors and the brightness and the sheer life and joy, the difference, the contrast was fascinating to me. Here's a guy who is not coming from a Christian perspective and yet cast it in this light. That the living... That's, that's to come. Eternal life. That's where we want to be. That's where the colors are more vibrant. Where the life is truly lived. Not here. This is the land of the dying. These bodies we walk in, they're bodies of death. They're bodies of death. And I don't say that to depress you, but Paul says, man, we carry around the dying of Jesus in us. The persecution of Jesus. The pain of Jesus. Now. Because we know we are going to be manifested like Christ one day. We're going to to walk around in glorified bodies. Colorful, beautiful, fantastic. Now, Jesus doesn't do for Smyrna what he does with several of the other churches. He does not give a corrective accusation. When someone is trampled, broken down, beaten, is not the time to correct their behavior. And Jesus, like the psalm tells us, uh, Bruce Reed, he will not break. And so he doesn't give a corrective accusation, but he immediately gives prophetic recognition. Prophetic recognition. He says, I know your tribulation, verse 9, and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Pause for a moment. What's a synagogue of Satan? What's that about? Specifically, we're talking about Jewish people turned against Christians for the purpose of throwing Rome off their scent. You see, once we can make the Christians the scapegoat, maybe Rome will ease up on us a bit. And it happened for a time. A little. The Jews still had intense persecution. But if they could sidle up to Rome and, and cast off and say, no, no, they're the ones, they're, they're the ones saying they drink blood. Have you heard about that? Yeah, they drink blood in their worship services all the time. 
they're pagan, they're, they're wrong. You need to stamp them out. The synagogue of Satan. Trying to throw Rome off of the Jewish trail. And this is not, by the way, anti-Semitism. Because what Jesus is saying here is this is a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is saying, these are not real Jews. This is not real Israel. Kind of in the same way that the Church of the Crusades was not the church. And the church that, in fact, there's on the History Channel going to be a, um, a big show about this. I think this coming next week here about the Crusade and the Cross. Or the Cross and the, what's it called? Cross and the Crescent and the Cross. That's right. The Crescent and the Cross. Talking once again about how the Christians came against the Muslims and just slaughtered them and how brutal the Crusades were. And you know what? They were. That isn't the church. That is not Christianity. Serving under the name, under the banner of Jesus with the brutalities that they, that they produced. There are many people who say they are Christian but are not. The easy way to know, and I'll just remind you of this, I, I hope that you never get tired of, of these words. The way that we can know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that a person is a Christian is the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. It is that simple. Look for the fruit. If the fruit is there, they are walking with the Spirit. If the fruit is not there, they are not. But anyway, back to it. These were Jews of what Jesus called a synagogue of Satan. Jewish persecutors trying to get Rome off their backs. And then, of course, there was Rome itself. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Prophetic recognition. You're about to go into tribulation. You think you have it bad right now, Smyrna. I'm going to let you know. I'm letting you in on something. It's going to get worse. As a matter of fact, it's going to get hideous for ten days. What does that mean? Ten days. Could it be ten literal days? Well, it's likely... It's likely the church at Smyrna was being warned and prepared for a 10-day or possibly a 10-month or could have even been a 10-year blast of persecution. But they didn't know what we know now. For we can look back and see again, not only is this historic Smyrna, but it is prophetic Smyrna. Because between 60 and 312 A.D., the church went through not 10 days, but 10 waves of persecution massive persecution by Rome ten waves there were in these years ten Roman emperors who would attempt to crush the life out of the church Nero was the first we talked about Nero a couple weeks back Domitian quickly followed him Domitian is the one who stuck John on that rock called Patmos following Domitian was Trajan and then Marcus Aurelius followed by Severus, Maximinius, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and finally Diocletian. And all ten of these emperors were hell-bent on the destruction of the church. It was only after Diocletian, with the rise of Constantine, that the persecution stopped. So we see the prophetic here. You are about to go into ten days of persecution. Ten days, ten ways, ten emperors bent on destroying the church. If you want to read about more of what happened in that era, I encourage you to read Fox's Book of Martyrs or pick up Eusebius' History of the Church, which I'm finding is a pretty amazing treasure in and of itself. I'll share a story with you of that time. In 161 AD, when Marcus Aurelius took the throne in Rome, there was an old beloved pastor by the name of Polycarp. He was the last surviving student, specifically disciple, of John the Apostle. 
At 86 years of age, Polycarp had a dream that he was asleep and his pillow caught fire. Now you need to understand, Polycarp, Polycarp was a pastor. And Pastor Polycarp was beloved by his people, an older pastor, 86 years old, and his people loved him. And as they saw persecution rising in the area where they lived, they said, Polycarp, you've got to get out. Get out of the city. And he resisted. He wanted to stay where his people were, where his church was. But they finally convinced him, and he went out and was hidden in a farm outside of the city limits. He was discovered, they, they realized he was there, and so he was moved to yet a second farm. And at the second farm, Polycarp had a dream. And the dream was that he was lying on his bed and his pillow caught fire and burned to complete ashes. And then he woke up. And he immediately gathered those Christians who were with him in the house. And he interpreted, he interpreted the vision in the dream. He said, I'm going to die by fire. I will be burned alive for my faith. That's what the Lord is telling me is going to happen. Just days after that, the Romans caught up with Polycarp. They found him hiding in the house. A servant who was, who was being um, brutally tortured gave up the whereabouts of where Polycarp was. And so the Romans got him and they pulled him back and they brought him into the city, into the Colosseum in the city. And there they tried to, to reason with him. They said, look, Polycarp, all you have to do, you're an old man, you can live out your days in peace, you can even have your church. Just take a little pinch of incense, throw it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. If you were Polycarp, it's just one sentence. You could turn around and deny it immediately to family and friends. I didn't really mean it. I just said it. But that's not what my heart was saying. That's not what I really believe. You, you know. You all understand. I just said that because, hey, you know, the bridge is going real well right now. And I don't want to be taken out. God needs me here. So, so yeah, I, you know, Caesar is Lord. How easy is that? Polycarp refused. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served my Lord, and He has been faithful to me. You think in these last moments of my life, I'm going to be unfaithful to Him? They begged and they pleaded with Him, but the, the crowd was calling for His blood, so they, they finally brought Him out to the middle of the Colosseum. They were going to burn Him. They got ready to tie Him to the stake, and Polycarp said, no, don't, don't tie me to the stake. My love for the Lord will keep me bound. And so untied, Polycarp stood in the middle of all of this wood and they call for it to be lit on fire now now church history tells us that they lit the wood on fire and it began to billow up and around Polycarp but he would not burn the fire couldn't get near him it, it tried, it got close but it kind of created this canopy around him and Polycarp stood in the middle of that canopy just smiling just happy to be there serving his Lord one of the Romans got angry at that point. A spear, a chucker, grabbed his spear and threw it into the shoulder of Polycarp and blood gushed out of his shoulder. And we're told that the blood gushed out so fully it put out the fire. The blood put out the fire. Which you know is interesting because that's, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? The blood puts out the fire. The blood of Christ puts out that fire of persecution in our lives. When we begin to struggle and, and ache and have pain and problems because of our faith, we remember the blood of Jesus and the fire tends to go out. Well, that wasn't enough. They finally did get him back up on the pyre and they burned him alive. And Polycarp was killed that way. But the connection, the connection of Pastor Polycarp's martyrdom is fascinating to me because... Polycarp was the pastor of a church in a city called Smyrna. He was the pastor of Smyrna. 
the pastor of Myrrh, the, the crushed church, the persecuted church. Why, Lord? Again, we ask, did you birth your church in this time, in this era? Millions of people dying in the early church, but gang, many more millions received life eternal through Jesus Christ. Through the word that was preached, through the passion that grew and proliferated throughout Christianity, it was during these 300 years that there were incredible Christian writings coming from men such as Polycarp, who was martyred, uh, Justin Martyr, who was martyred, a man named Tertullian, a brilliant early Christian writer who wrote these famous words. Tertullian wrote, The blood of the martyrs is seed. The blood of the martyrs is seed. That is a great phrase to just kind of remember. The blood of the martyrs is seed. And Russ, I'm starting to heat up a bit, so I don't know if you want to crank that thing off. <laughs> the blood of the martyrs is seed. Now, i got to pause just for a moment while Russ is taking care of that. And just make this comment to you, and it's one that I'm sure you know would, would agree with. Martyrdom in our world today, the way it's being presented, is not right. Martyrdom is not killing yourself so that you can kill other people. We have a word for that. It's homicide. And so while in the Muslim world, especially with the radical Islamists, you hear the constant talk about he was a martyr or this, was, you know, this, this bomber was a martyr for, for Allah, for is, Islam. Gang, no God who is God would ask his people to suffer martyrdom to kill other people. And when we read about the martyrdom of the early church, their martyrdom was the martyrdom of self. They died. No other life was taken because they were killed. They gave up their life freely, openly, in the same way that Jesus did. And the blood of martyrs, true martyrs, is seed. The more blood of Christians that was spilled in those 282 years, the more the church grew. The more it spread out. It could not be stopped. It was like wildfire. And by the way, it's the same today. In some of the fastest growing regions of Christianity in the world, we see the greatest persecution. We see the heaviest tribulation. The blood of martyrs is seed. By the way, also, it was during this first 282 years that the first copy of the New Testament came together. It was circulated, put together, it was called the Muratorian Canon. And around A.D. 200, it was finally collected and shared in the church. The more the church was crushed, the stronger and sweeter was its fragrance, which is prophetically indicated again back in Acts chapter 8, which we began with tonight. Acts chapter 8 has said a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles and Acts chapter 8 verse 4 tells us the following therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word one little sentence but so much power in that those who had been persecuted scattered kicked out of their homes lost everything they just went on the road for Jesus and began to spread the word truly the blood of martyrs is seed. Verse 10, last part of the verse. This brings us to number 4 in our, in our outline coming through. Jesus gives now a practical recommendation and also, we're going to take these two together, an eternal motivation. A practical recommendation for Smyrna and an eternal motivation. Chapter 2, verse 10. At the end of the verse, Jesus says these words, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't be like Ephesus, Smyrna, who left her first love. You be faithful, not just in the calm, but in the crushing. 
And by the way, this is another clue that Smyrna, along with Ephesus and Pergamum, Smyrna is a prophetic church of the past. These first three churches are three churches that are referred to prophetically, but after they ended, so did their story end. They're not represented in the church of today. How do you mean this? What do you, what do you mean by this? Jesus says the following. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Smyrna and everybody in the church of Smyrna would die. They would not be alive at the time of the rapture of the church. Therefore, even as we read about Smyrna as a, a, from 100 to 312 AD, this church would be people who all in the church at that time would die prior to the coming of Jesus, the rapture of the church, the catching up, because Jesus says, be faithful until death. Of course, they will be among those of whom it is written, the dead in Christ will rise first. And so Jesus says, hang on, Smyrna, hang tough. I've got something special for you. My practical recommendation, be faithful until death. The eternal motivation, for I will give you a crown. The crown of life. Smyrna still exists today. It's called Izmir. The city, Izmir. It's Turkey's third largest city. Its nickname today is the Pearl of the Aegean because of its seaport wealth. It's a beautiful city. But Smyrna had a nickname in John's day, too. It was prosperous, it was beautiful, and at the center of its acropolis there was a beautiful crown of flowers and hedges and myrtle trees, and it was called the Crown City. And so Jesus, making a play on words, a play on this church and where it was located, says, Hey, be faithful until death, and I'll give you a crown, Smyrna. You're living, this church, you, you persecuted church, you're in the crown city, but I've got a crown that is much better for you. I have the crown of life. And then he says something that bears understanding. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now let me just be clear on this. We're going to come back to this and look at it uh, pretty clearly in uh, Revelation chapter 20. But what is the second death? What is the second death? He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, the first death, and you can probably just figure this out, piece it together. The first death is the physical death. Which means any of us may endure. We may go through. We may experience the physical death. All of Smyrna did. Be faithful until death, and you'll receive the crown of life. They all went through the first death, but the second death is spiritual and eternal. I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 20 for just a moment. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. John is writing and he says, Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's one of the verses where we get the whole thousand year reign of Christ. And where we will reign with Him. Those, gang, those who have a part in the first resurrection... Over these, the second death has no power. Okay, so what's the first resurrection? What does that mean? The first resurrection is a drawn-out resurrection. Let me explain. It began with Jesus. Jesus opened the door to the first resurrection. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15.20, it tells us, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, Jesus is the first to experience, to, to go through the first resurrection. He's the one who made it possible. 
after Jesus, it will be beautifully played out with the rapture, the catching up of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord Himself will descend. will descend from heaven in a prowler with no with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord and 1 Corinthians 15.51 and by the way I just never get tired of reading these verses I hope you get, don't get tired of hearing them behold Paul says I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Still part of that first resurrection. By the way, I believe the dead here will also include all those who died in faith, including Old Testament saints as well. All those who died in faith in the Lord will at that time, the catching up, the harpazo, the rapture, all will be caught up. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will meet them together in the air. But this first resurrection that began with Christ includes all those who die in faith or who are caught up in the rapture will end, it will conclude with the last person to accept Jesus during the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 7 verse 13 says the following. One of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? John in Revelation 7.14 says, My Lord, you know. In other words, I don't What are you asking me for? You know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When we get to Revelation 7, it's awesome. There is a massive harvest of souls. People say during the tribulation, oh, wait a minute, Rick. <laughs> You're saying that people are going to be saved without the existence of the church on earth? Without all of our harvest crusades and evangelical pushes, people are going to be saved anyway? Yeah, probably more people than we have been able to save in the last 2,000 years. You know, so next time we're real excited about our evangelical campaigns, remember, it's God who does it and not us. And He will do it with and without us. So here is this, the, the first resurrection, including Jesus first, all the way through to the last person to accept Christ during that tribulation period. But gang, there is a second resurrection as well. A resurrection you do not want to be a part of. The second resurrection is for all those who are not part of the first resurrection, and it has one purpose. It's for everybody who dies outside of faith. outside of it and its purpose is judgment the second resurrection is for one single purpose the purpose of judgment leading to the horrifying second death Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 look at these verses then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Get down to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The first resurrection. 
and the first death. You may take part in the first death. Any one of us here may take part in the first death, meaning we may die the physical death. I hope not. I've told you, and I'll say it over again, over and over again, until either the Lord comes or I die. But I want to be part of the rapture. I want to be alive when He calls. But if I'm not, so be it. I'll beat the rest of you there. So either way, it's a good thing. But the first resurrection is that resurrection to life eternal with Jesus. And it overcomes the first death. The second resurrection is that resurrection to judgment which leads to the second death which is eternal. And Jesus promises. He guarantees. Going back to Smyrna. He says, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. One of my favorite of all phrases. Moody said this. He said, he who is born once will die twice, but he who is born twice will die once. He who is born once, if you only have a physical birth, you're going to die twice. You will die the physical death and you will die the spiritual death. But if you're born twice, of Jesus said, water and the spirit, the physical and the spiritual death. If you are born twice, you will die once. Or in the case of those who are alive at his coming, he who is born twice will never die. The second birth leading to eternal life. Flip in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I have one more thing to share with you tonight and we're going to stop. I, I was tempted to go ahead and do Pergamum. I think I want to leave you with this message here. But Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll be there in about verse... Yeah, it says 17 up there. We'll probably start about verse 28. But I want to leave you with four words to live by. And they're the words of Jesus, his encouragement to Smyrna. And I would say if you have anything to think through, if you want to process through a sentence this week, something to meditate on, let it be these four words. Be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. Again, Tertullian wrote, the blood of martyrs is seed. And gang, that goes for today as well as tomorrow, as well as that time when you might find yourself dying for the sake of Christ. As I said, the gospel tends to spread like wildfire. In fact, it's spreading back in Asian regions today where it originally started. It's moving incredibly powerfully. And if you want to know about the persecution going on in that place of the world for Christians, I'd encourage you to pick up and get free copies of Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Or go to voiceofthemartyrs.com and check out what they are relating, the persecutions of Christians in the world today. And it's intensifying there as well. And, and some of us may someday, I hate to say it, but we may someday experience or face martyrdom for the sake of our faith. Now, most of us will say, what, you mean driving to work on Highway 20? I'm going to experience martyrdom on Whidbey Island or Fidalgo Island or down in Mount Vernon? Like, I'm going to experience martyrdom? Not here, not, not us. It's entirely possible. But when I say, be faithful unto death, as we consider and ponder these words of Christ, if you are never martyred, you can still be faithful until death. Even if you don't die. Even if you live to the day when Jesus calls you home, at the time of the catching up, you can still live faithful until death. What do you mean? Watch this. Mark chapter 10. Beginning, I guess we'll begin about verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, 
I think a little tongue in cheek. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. <laughs> right here, dude. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments Jesus said. Do not murder. And do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Uh, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Of course, he doesn't mention coveting. Verse 20, he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? For the Jewish mindset was somewhat prosperity gospel. That if you have a lot, if you're wealthy, if you're rich, then you're blessed, which means you're righteous. You know, two and two equals four and a half. You're blessed. You're righteous. They didn't understand. How is this possible? Who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now here's the part to zone in on. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we left everything and followed you. Look at us, Lord. We're doing pretty good, aren't we? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Be faithful until death. Jesus explains this beautifully here. Jesus says, anyone who has left brothers, house, sisters, mother, father, children, farms for my sake, be faithful until death. Are you willing to be faithful until death? Even the death of your job, if that's what it means. The death of a particular relationship that is important to you. The death of all of your aspirations for success. The death of your dreams. Are you willing, am I willing to be faithful to Jesus even to the death of personally important things? Be faithful until death. Even if that means a real and tangible loss in my life. A loss of something that makes me feel alive? Something that brings me joy? Yes! Be faithful until death. Is there anything that you are more faithful to than Jesus? Anything that you would have trouble dying to? Be faithful until death. Gang, I'm just going to say it. Faithfulness to Jesus may lead to a great loss of this kind of life. But it will yield eternal life. Jesus said, be faithful, be faithful. I'll end with this. I just received an email this afternoon from David Groves. David, I don't think he's here tonight. David's not here. David's one of our high school seniors. 
I love getting emails like this. I just want to read it to you and let the word settle and we'll pray and be done tonight. Dear Rick, a certain passage was revealed to me that sums up exactly how my last month or so of my walk in Christ is gone. This verse, I believe, didn't just apply to me, but to our church in general. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He writes, the part about adversaries may not at first sound encouraging, but with all the spiritual attacks, and even the physical illness in the church body, even so-called terminal illnesses, it's pretty clear that the enemy is, quote, giving us his best shot. Well, I don't overestimate Satan when I can help it, David writes, but I know it is important to recognize where the attack is coming from. And I've heard lots of prophecies and or feelings about upcoming growth in our church, if not growth, but at least spiritual encouragement. And I thought that verse explains the timing of all this coming at the same time. And then he just signs it, on to Jesus, Zorro. <laughs> In parentheses, David. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Polycarp would read that email and say, right on, David. Right on.